Welcome to the Essential Tennis Podcast. If you love tennis and want to improve your game, this podcast is for you. Whether it's technique, strategy, equipment, or the mental game, tennis professional Ian Westerman is here to make you a better player. And now, here's Ian. Hi, and welcome to the Essential Tennis Podcast, your place for free, experts, tennis instruction that can truly help you improve your game. Today's episode of the Essential Tennis Podcast is brought to you by TennisTours.com, where you can receive a discount off your next purchase of professional tennis event tickets and travel packages by using the promotional code ESSENTIAL with a capital E. Well, thanks very much for joining me today. I really appreciate you taking the time to download this podcast file and to listen to the show. I've got a special guest with me on the podcast today, we're going to be talking all about different mental tennis topics, which is always a favorite topic of mine. So let's go ahead and get right to it. Sit back, relax, and get ready for some great tennis instruction. My guest today on the Essential Tennis Podcast is Dr. Patrick Cohn. He is the host of the Tennis Psychology Podcast. You guys can find that on iTunes. It's one of the top tennis podcasts in iTunes, and he's a mental toughness expert in all kinds of different fields of sports, which is interesting. Uh, Dr. Cohn, welcome back to the podcast. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me again, Ian. Yeah, you bet. Uh, actually, let's talk about that briefly. I, I In Googling your name to get a little bit of background information about you, to do an introduction, I couldn't help but notice, but you you specialize in a lot of different sports. I, I noticed uh, race car driving uh, and tennis, and there were a couple other ones in there as well. How many different areas of sport do you specialize in? Well, the whole gamut. I mean, uh, tennis is one of my specialties. Golf and tennis are a couple specialty areas that I have. Also, racing is another specialty, but um, I, I worked with equestrians, um, hmm. Skaters, dancers, basketball players, baseball players. Um, I work with the, uh, the entire gamut, you know. So I've opened up my uh, business for um, working with um, all performers and athletes. Um, and um, tennis and golf are the ones where I've focused in terms of the products uh, that I've developed and um, also some of the um, online material, like the podcast, et cetera. Okay. That's, that's interesting that you bring uh, so much different experience to the table. And, and I'm actually curious, one question for myself before we get to listener questions. What unique challenges or circumstances do, do tennis players, uh, in your opinion, get faced with compared to all those other sports that you've worked with? Well, both tennis and golf, I mean, we could ch- chunk those together, but it's the, it's the start and stop nature of tennis, I think, that is that has one of the unique mental demands because, hmm. um, you know, between points, obviously there has to be a ritual and you have to be able to let go of the last point, but then you have to kick up the focus again and restart it. You have changeovers, obviously, and it's it's like coming out at halftime again, you know, hmm. even though a changeover is, um, you know, it's shorter than a halftime. But I think the, the continual starting and stopping, um, it would be one. Um, 
I think another one that I find in particular, at least working with young juniors right now, is they pay too much attention to ranking, I guess. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know if they get psyched out or they get overconfident. And really the rankings rankings and the seedings really don't meet a lot, I don't think, um, at the junior level. Um, So I think... They get too worried about where their their seeding is or who they're playing, and, and and don't focus enough on their own game and their own strengths. Okay, interesting. Well, let's go ahead and get to some questions from listeners of the podcast, and, and these were actually taken from the forums at EssentialTennis.com. People were really excited to hear that you were coming back on the show, by the way. You're definitely one of the favorite guests that I've had on the show, so I'm happy to have you back. Great, great. So let's go ahead and, uh, and get started with the questions. The first one is from David in Dallas, and he wrote a nice, short, and sweet one and said, are there stress-relieving routines one can do in a match to promote fluid strokes during tense moments? What do you think? Um, this is in a match. This is during a match or before a match. Uh, this looks like in a match, during a match. Yeah. Okay. Um, well... David, I think you have to understand that there's no really quick fixes in my work. In other words, there's no band-aids out there. (laughs) Breathing, (laughs) obviously, tightening and releasing, stretching. You know, those are all the physical things that you can do, obviously, to relieve stress. Um, uh, The whole area of relaxation training and being able to use relaxation training. But there's one premises, and that is it's body to mind. (laughs) So what that means is you're trying to reduce the tension in the body and hopefully that will reduce some of the tension in the mind, you know. But my philosophy is often that's a band-aid. The whole breathing, certainly that can help settle yourself between points, tightening and releasing, relaxing, but what you really have to understand is where that mental stress is coming from because the mental stress, the mental anxiety, ultimately leads to the physical tension and then the strokes don't feel as smooth. So mm-hmm. typically what I see, if I was to give it kind of the um, chain the, the chain of command here, it would be, there's there's an underlying fear of failure. Let's just say that there's a fear of embarrassment, for example, that mm-hmm. creates some anxiety, which creates some of the physical tension, but it also creates a lack of trust. And now um, it's hard to hit out on the ball. It's hard to hit your normal fluid strokes because you got both of those going, the tension and the lack of trust, and they may be related to each other. Lack of trust is usually when you're trying to... St- guide it and steer the ball around rather than just just hit your normal strokes uh, because you're afraid of missing shots um, or you're trying to be too perfect with it but so that's what I mean um, David and and Ian uh, is about there's no there's no quick fixes and band-aids like simple relaxation techniques now you can do that to, to, to reduce your physiological activation in other words, the, the breathing, what we call the abdominal breathing between points, can help get oxygenate your system and, and reduce your heart rate quickly. But it really doesn't address where the mental stress is coming from. And that, to me, 
is the key. My philosophy is what is the fear? What is the stress? And um, a lot of times what I find is the fear and the stress is it relates to some type of fear of failure, which is often related to um, other people. I don't want to disappoint a parent. I don't want to disappoint a teammate. I don't want to disappoint a coach. Um, uh, I've worked too hard on my game to, you know, um, to perform this way. I don't want to lose, you know, so it's, those those are often what I call the, the mental triggers um, that are going to lead to some of this perceived stress and anxiety that the player has, um, which is more of a core issue. And you have to address these core issues um, in order to completely relieve. So I guess what I'm saying is there are no quick routines that you can do, um, other than, like I said, there's certainly, you know, you could do some relaxation training and stuff like that. But from a mind game perspective, I would say try to keep your mind focused in the present. Don't get ahead of yourself because when you get ahead of yourself and you focus on results, that's when you can easily start getting tense and anxious. Try to just play the, the next point to the best of your ability. Obviously, easier said than done. But uh, for some players, that's helpful, too, is to remind yourself, um, let's just po- play the next point. Let's just play the next game, you know, one point at a time, one shot at a time, and not get too far ahead of myself. Because the, the fear, the anxiety, is often uh, for future thinking about results and consequences and sure. what, if, what if I lose. Sure, yeah. Well, I, I think that a lot of my listeners will really be able to identify with one thing that you said. You said that a lot of times this physical tension is due to mental anxiety over fear of failure or embarrassment or, or letting a person down. So let's say that my listeners out there are are having this realization that, wow, yeah, I'm feeling so much pressure because I don't want to let my parents down or my coach down or my teammates down, even though... Um, it's easier uh, said than done, but you know we, we all should realize that it's not that important that we win each match. But I, I guess my, my follow-up question for you, Dr. Cohn, is once we identify where that anxiety is coming from, how do we deal with it? In other words, if, if my pressure is coming from uh, thinking that I don't want to let my coach down, how can I work past that mentally? Okay, so that's good that you gave me a specific example. So ultimately, um, then you have to find out the roots of, um, you know, why does the player worry about um, letting the coach down? What is it that they, are they playing for the coach? So number one, the player probably cares too much about what other people think, and we call that social approval Mm -hmm. um, in my work, is they're looking for some type of approval, some type of respect, they're very much oriented and geared towards, um, you know, what the coach has to say um, uh, to them uh, too much. You know, um, they hang on every word maybe the coach says, for example. And it's not, in general, it's not healthy, for example. Okay. So step one is the, the athlete has to realize that they're playing for themselves and not their coach. Or, okay. they're, or they're playing for themselves and they're not playing for a parent. 
because a lot of young kids I know that I work with, they worry about disappointing a parent or they want to make their parents happy or, you know, uh, whatever. So they, they have to start playing for themselves and not playing to get respect or to get admiration from the, from the coach. Okay. okay. The second part of that is um, they have to learn to be able to catch themselves when they start worrying about what a coach is going to say or worrying if they're going to disappoint a coach. They have to be able to recognize that, that uh, mental turmoil that's going on and be able to refocus themselves in a way that they're not burdened or, or hindered by that. So um, it's, you know, I'm making it sound easy and, and simplistic. <laughs> it's not that easy and it's not that simplistic, uh, sure. certainly. Um, but that's the direction that I take it with my students. And it usually goes to some type of ego involvement, to put it simply. Um, ego involvement means players that don't have self-respect often look for respect from other people. Hmm. That's, that's the premises of social approval. They, don't, they haven't given themselves unconditional self-respect, and they feel like they need to get it from other people, and that, that can be really dangerous for athletes. Well, before we get to our next question, I want to remind my listeners about the official sponsor of the Essential Tennis Podcast, and that is Championship Tennis Tours. You guys can find them at tennistours.com. And since 1987, they've been providing tickets and travel packages to professional tennis events. You guys should definitely go check them out and especially check out their U.S. Open travel packages. If you guys purchase one of those using my promotional code, which is ESSENTIAL with a capital E, you'll not only get a discount, but you'll get an invitation to a cocktail party in Times Square where myself and Will Hamilton from Fuzzy Yellow Balls are going to be doing a little cocktail reception during the tournament, and it's going to be a lot of fun. So please go check them out, look at their their prices, and make a purchase through them if you're going to be going to a professional tennis event anytime soon. And please use the promotional code to show that you're supporting the Essential Tennis Podcast and uh, thank my sponsor for their support of me as well. All right, let's go ahead and move on to our next question, which comes to us from Gary. And his question was, should I consciously think that I'm a better player than the opponents or opponents? Or should I just be confident in my game and my strokes? At what point is confidence just simple arrogance? Also, can arrogance actually help you sometimes in a game or match? What is the precise relationship between confidence and being able to stay relaxed in tennis also? So there's a bunch of questions thrown in there, but let's go ahead and start with the, uh, I guess... There's several um, issues there. There's yeah. several issues, yeah. Go ahead and take the lead on that. Okay, um, so let's start off with the first segment about should I consciously think that I'm a better player than the opponent? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know about the consciously part about that. I mean, either you do or you don't. You can't <laughs> fake that, right? <laughs> you can't fake that. Um, so I don't, it, it sounds like he, he's asking, should I fake it um, and, and just automatically think that I'm better than my opponent, or should I just be confident in my game and my strokes? Um, there may be some expectation embedded in there that I think that um, I'm better than the other player, uh, which which 
I'm not a, um, a fan of, of having expectations like I should win, for example. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so I guess my answer is I like the sound of the second part of that. I want him to be confident in his game and strokes, go out there and play one shot at a time, and continue to believe in his game and his strokes, no matter if he's he's up big, he's down big, or if it's a really tight match. That, to me, it just has a better ring to it than having to consciously think that you're a better player. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of an, un- an unreasonable thought, isn't it? I, I mean... Uh, there's always going to be players that are better than us, and that that's not just tennis, but but every sport. Uh, and from day to day, you're you're going to play people that are much better, much worse, and and right in between. And it's not it's probably not healthy <laughs> psychologically uh, to to walk out onto a court and just automatically assume that you are better, is it? No, um, because I th- I think the, once again tied in with the expectations. If you just think you're better and you expect to win and then it doesn't go your way early in the match, mm-hmm. then there could be some real frustration tied with that. Yeah, absolutely. So what about um, this comparison between confidence and arrogance? I guess would, would arrogance be that, that first thought, that kind of the assumption that, of course, I'm better than my opponent? I look at that a little bit differently. I mean, I have this discussion with my students a lot. Um, so... Confidence, as we define it, is a belief in your ability, is a belief in your skills. It's how strongly you believe you can execute your shots, if we Mm -hmm. want to get more specific with it. So it's the strength of your belief. Arrogance, um, I don't use that term in sports psychology, but it's defined by people, I think, outside of sports that look at very uh, confident um, athletes and say that's arrogant. In other words... They look at supreme levels of confidence as being more too cocky or too arrogant. Right. I, I think it's usually people that are outside of sport. But some athletes do worry about how their confidence comes off. They don't want it to come off as a, a, an arrogant type you know, confidence. Like, I guess some people would say you know, Nadal, obviously, is a very uh, confident guy. Some people that might rub uh, that might um, not like some of his action would say that's arrogant. He's being arrogant or cocky. So um, what we really want is we we want cockiness and 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 confidence on the inside. You got to be internally confident and humble on the outside. Um, arrogance, I think, can be construed as. You're just doing it for the showboating. You know, I think of Deion Sanders. Um, <laughs> if if right. people, if your listeners are, are old enough to remember, you know, Deion Sanders at his heyday was very much a showboater. However, he had the skills to back it up. You know, mm-hmm. even though he was a showboater, he was very respected by his teammates, and he was a very, very talented athlete. So um, often I look at arrogance as just trying to put it in other people's face, rub it in their face on purpose, right? But I really want my students to have that internal confidence and cockiness, yet be, be humble on the outside, but not go out of your way to be humble on the outside, okay? Hmm. What, what do you mean by that? Well, sometimes if you, if you try so hard to be humble with your actions, 
and your statements that can um, often stifle your your internal level of confidence and cockiness. Hmm. Okay, because you're so concerned about how it looks to other people. Boy, I better not say that, or I better not think that way. Um, you know, that might be construed as being too arrogant or cocky on my part. So ultimately, then that'll feed internally to them where they're trying to put a cap on some of those thoughts. That's interesting. Do you, um, do you watch professional tennis uh, very often, Dr. Cohn? Yes, um, I do. I mean, obviously the bigger ones, Wimbledon sure. now and, and uh, the Open and, you know, Australian. So I, I, I'm glued to the TV when the, when the big ones are around. I don't want every week in and week out, no. So, I, so I'm curious what your opinion is because I've had conversations with actually many people, uh, tennis fans, tennis players, who do think that Nadal is arrogant and, and cocky. And I, I'm curious uh, what, what personally you, you feel about uh, that statement coming from a psychology standpoint. Well, I would say that it's a reflection of what he feels like on the inside. Okay. That it is a true confidence. It, it's, a, it's a true confidence that he lets out. Um, uh, in other words... He's he's not protect he he's not protecting or he's not filtering what he does or what he says. It's um, you know, and he's he's not afraid of the repercussions of it. So mm-hmm. often, often it's can be a reflection of someone that has a superior level of confidence. Because I, I think even a confident athlete or a confident tennis player can look at Nadal and say that's arrogance because maybe they can't relate to that level of confidence. Hmm. That you have to have, so and maybe it maybe it makes oh, yeah. it a little un- uneasy to to see uh, another player that confident on the court. Yeah, yeah, it could it could make them uneasy, or they just can't relate to that level of confidence, and then mm-hmm. they 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 call it arrogance, um, hmm. or they call he's too cocky. But you know what? The best athletes in the world, and the best tennis players in the world, they have that internal level of cockiness. You have to have that to in order to perform your best. Interesting stuff. And, and let's talk about the, the final question that Gary wrote here, which was, what is the precise relationship between confidence and being able to stay relaxed in tennis? Um, or is, is there one? <laughs> well, it's an interesting question because he's asking for a pre- precise relationship but between confidence and relaxation, what how I would answer that is I would say, if you have a lot of confidence, I call it a cure-all, hmm. meaning you don't get anxious, you don't get fearful, um, you don't get scared, you, because you have this level of confidence that everything is going to be all right, everything's going to turn out all right, and if it doesn't, then the next day will. So, I guess. I really don't know where he's going with that. But to me, the relationship is when you have a high level of confidence, you're going to be relaxed. When you don't have confidence, it's much more likely that you're going to have tension in your game. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So he Uh, says relaxed confidence. In the next statement, he asks about what is relaxed confidence in tennis as opposed to other types of confidence. 
I've never heard of relaxed confidence. I would, I would make the assumption once again he's looking at it from a perspective like um, someone like um, Federer. Federer kind of looks mm-hmm. laid back and relaxed, but he has a he has a nice, confident demeanor about him, as opposed to Nadal, who looks very you know you know jumpy, cocky you know type of confidence when you look at him. Sure. Uh, is that just kind of different personality styles, or why do they come off so differently? Yeah, I think that's different personality styles and how they display their confidence. Okay. Um, certainly, yeah. Okay. All right, uh, let's move on to our third question. This comes to us from Adialo in New York. He wrote and said, what should you be thinking about on changeovers? Is this the, to- is this the time to pump yourself up? Take a mental breather or put yourself in a relaxed state? Should you be mulling over tactics? And if so, should it be general things like stay aggressive or more detailed thoughts like serve wide to, to their backhand or hit down the middle to take away angles, etc.? Very um, interesting question. I think a very astute question. I like my students to start off with a game plan that they have a game plan that's going to work for a particular opponent or their style of play. Um, in addition to that, I like my students to focus on what are, are, are called process goals. Process goals are little things that you're going to do to execute, you know, each and every point that you can. So uh, that it's a good example of kind of a strategy and a process goal um, tied into one. Stay aggressive could be. Uh, more general process goal, whereas serve wide to the backhand, hit down the middle to take away the angles. That's more strategy once again, but it can also be a process goal. Process goals can be really small, like make sure you pick a target before you get up to the service line in your mm-hmm. in your service routine. Make sure you pick a target and, and commit to the target and commit to the type of serve you're going to hit, right? Okay. Those are uh, more specific examples of, of process goals. But in terms of changeovers, uh, he says pump yourself up, take a breather, relax yourself. I do believe it's kind of where you are in the match and what your mental state is. If, you know, you just missed an easy volley to lose the game and you're just beside yourself, you know, (laughs) I don't think pumping yourself up is going to (laughs) work, right? That's the yeah. time where you want to take some deep breaths, say it's okay, let's let it go, let's get to the next game, for example. If things are going really well, for example, in the match, and you're, you're up uh, 4-1, for example, that's where you, where you want to remind yourself to stay aggressive. Okay, let's finish this off, let's stay aggressive, let's not go into protect mode you know, and give my opponent any momentum. Let's keep the momentum going and stay aggressive with my shots. So that's a couple examples of it depends on really what's going on uh, for you in that match and what type of adjustments that you have to make on the changeovers. Because sports psychology, Ian, is all about uh, the the real value in sports psychology isn't when you're in the zone and you're playing great. The Mm -hmm. real value of sports psychology is when you need to make adjustments. Sure. You just lost your confidence because you you know, whack two balls long, for example, or you, you, the example I said before, you miss an easy volley and you're really upset with yourself and you're frustrated and you need to make an adjustment. 
or you find that your mind is wandering and you just don't have the focus you need and you need to, um, you know, get your mind refocused on the match, you know, on and on and on. Obviously, I, I could keep going on some of the adjustments that you need to make. Maybe you're too anxious and tense and you need to calm down and take some, take some breaths and try and let go of the last game, uh, for example, or the last couple of games. So it's really about what's going on with your mental state at that time. Generally, I can say what you're trying to do each and every point and each and every changeover is you're trying to be in a confident, a focused state and in a, in a state of um, what I call trust, meaning um, you, you have trust in your skills and what you practice and you trust your strokes. Those are, those are the biggies that I teach my students. So if any of those are askew during changeovers, you obviously want to, want to talk to yourself and, and set up a plan. For example, if you feel like you're, you're, you're tightening up and you're pushing the ball or you're, steering, you're guiding it with your racket rather than swinging out with your racket, then that might be a situation where um, you decide, you know what, that's not working. So I, I, let's just throw that away, and um, let's just start hitting out on the ball. Let's just and, and accept the results. I, I like how you're you're tying the decision making process there to the momentum in the match and and how well things are going. I, I I actually learned that lesson when I was playing in college, and it's not anything that I had thought about before. But I, I was playing up with somebody much higher in the lineup than me that I normally wouldn't have been playing doubles with. And we were beating a team um, that was better than us. And we were both playing real well. And we were going uh, over to a changeover. And uh, my partner, who's a much stronger player than me, uh, much more experienced, you know, we, we went over to our bags uh, and we were grabbing our water. I started to sit down and he was like, no, stand up, stand up. And uh, we put our water down, walked right over to the other side of the net and, and got into uh, our uh, uh, positions to play the next point and just stood there and watched the other guys and like, you know, kind of to pressure them to keep them going. And, and he kept us rolling. Uh, you know, he didn't let us take a breather. He, he let us stay on our roll. Um, and the flip side of the coin, we were having trouble in a different match. And, um, I think we were down a break and he took a ball and kicked it, <laughs> uh, over like two courts down. And he was like, come here. And we like walked and talked while we went and, and grabbed the ball, uh, to give ourselves a little bit of time. Um, do those sound like good, uh, you know, maybe kicking a ball on purpose to, to waste time isn't, uh, uh, ethical, <laughs> but do those sound like good examples of, of being able to play with the momentum of the match? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, another good example that I see is a player that's, that's down and that's frustrated. I, I mm -hmm. see it with the younger kids a lot, um, what they'll do is they won't stop for a drink. They'll just go right to the service line, you know, yeah. to return a serve. And that's exactly the wrong thing that you need to do in that situation. That's the wrong adjustment. They want to, they want to get up there. They either want the match over with quickly or they want to get to the next game so they can win a game quickly and settle themselves down. And it's exactly the wrong thing you need to do where you need to actually take more time mm -hmm. on the changeover to sit down do some breathing, try to let go of some of the frustration that you have. Um, and then when you're ready, then get up and walk slowly and calmly to uh, the serve or return of serve. 
So, yeah, um, those are good examples of, you know, trying to make adjustments on changeovers based upon what's going on um, in the match, certainly. Yep. Uh, I remember uh, one time, I mean, just quickly, um, Mm -hmm. my daughter was up, um, was playing a pretty good opponent. Um, This this was a while ago, but um, she was up three love in the... um, uh, in the second set, and she needed to win the second set to pull even, and she took a bathroom break. <laughs> what do you think happened after she came back from the bathroom break? I'm guessing she had a letdown. <laughs> she lost all the momentum. She lost oh, all the man. momentum. She had she had her opponent back, the, her opponent's back against the, the fence. You know, she was reeling. She was upset. She lost three games in a row. And just exactly the wrong time to go for a bathroom break. But I mean, you got you know, nature calls. You got to go, but you got to go. But I said, <laughs> why'd you take the bathroom break? You're up three zero, and you got all the momentum. I had to right. go, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's another example of when you got the momentum and you got your player against the, you know, um, you know, get out there and get after it. You know, don't sure. don't you know call an official or. You know, don't uh, break the flow. Don't break the momentum. Well, Dr. Cohn, uh, with that, we're going to wrap things up. We're out of time. But I I want to thank you very much for spending time with me and especially for answering questions from my listeners. I know that they're going to appreciate it very much, um, not only that you took the time to be here, but for all the great information you've given as well. So uh, thank you very much for for doing the show with me. Uh, It was great to have you. Hey, thanks for having me on again, Ian. I appreciate it. Sure. And uh, b- before we sign off, I want to remind my listeners as well, definitely check out the Tennis Psychology Podcast on iTunes. And you can go to Dr. Cohn's tennis site as well, which is sportspsychologytennis.com. Uh, thanks again, Dr. Cohn. It's great to have you. Thank you. All right. That brings episode number 125 of the Essential Tennis Podcast to a close. And before I wrap things up, I want to thank a couple really special people who have donated to Essential Tennis in the last couple weeks. Just three people uh, this time, Shelly in New Mexico, Kimberly in Texas. And I want to send a special thank you to John in Oregon, who sent an unusually high... (laughs) Uh, donation, uh, unusually large donation to Essential Tennis. And John, John, I want to send a special thank you out to you uh, on the podcast. Really appreciate your donation. Um, So if the podcast has helped you improve, and if you really appreciate the show and you'd like to give back, feel free to do that through a donation. does not have to be a large amount. And you can also sign up for a subscription donation and make a small monthly donation of $5, $10, or $20. And you can do that by going to EssentialTennis.com. And on the front page in the lower right, there's a box that says Donate. So go check that out. And I would appreciate your support very, very much. All right, that does it for this week. Thanks again, everybody, for listening. I appreciate it. Take care, and good luck with your tennis.